Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Beekeeping is a fantastic use for the environment. You know, we keep bees and derive income from a forest. And if, if that person can't derive income from a forest, they're gonna chop it down and burn it for fuel. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. My name's Sam. This week, we're joined by Dr. Garth Cambray, a PhD in biotechnology and mead making. He is the director of Makana Meadery in Makanda or Grahamstown in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. Makana Meadery has its beginnings in a Rhodes University-based research project to develop state-of-the-art fermentation technology for producing ikila in African mead. Listeners will also recognize David Frost, representing Be United, Makana's importer to the United States. Garth and David tell us about the Method Accidental project, in which the two team up to forage for and collect honey from the diverse biomes of South Africa. These spontaneously fermented meads convey a strong sense of place in their fermentation character, appearance, and flavor. Crucially, they're rooted in a sincere desire to use conservation to build cultural confidence, create sustainable incomes for local beekeepers, and share untold stories. Please be patient with the audio in this episode. It's not often we get to speak with a doctor of mead making from South Africa. In the show notes on our website, you'll find photos that help bring to life some of the incredible stories David and Garth share. Let's dive and get heavy. Garth and David, welcome to Heavy Hops. We're really happy to have you on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for hosting. So first off, for, for you, Garth, did bees find you? Or did you find bees? Um, yeah, no, no, typically it's the African scenario. My bicycle got stolen when I was in second year at university, which forced me to pick up a side job working with bees. So I, I started keeping bees as a way of getting money to buy new bicycles. So they sort of found me. And growing up, uh, did uh, was mead uh, something that you drank and how did this drink and beekeeping become an important thing for you? I, I had never even heard of mead. You know, I vaguely remember something about it when we had to study Shakespeare in high school. Um, and the way I learned about mead was actually um, when I started keeping bees, I had a couple of beehives in the back of my parents' um, garden. And um, their gardener was a guy called Gura, who was a mixture of koi and kosa. Um, and he made this stuff called kuri out of my beehives. He actually stole a beehive and took the inside and got completely and utterly drunk. And then when I was angry about the fact that he had, you know, ripped the heart out of my beehive, he told me, yes, but now you must see why. And then he gave me a couple of liters of the kurika that he had made. And that was how I learned about mead. I had no idea what it was, but it got me ridiculously drunk. And then I went to an auction and nearly bought a whole lot of stuff I didn't want. But after that, I did a bit of research and discovered what mead was. But I mean, literally, I had no idea. It, you know, it was some yellow stuff in a bottle that, you know, the very um, colorful gardener gave to me to drink. And it, 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 it really hit me very hard. And was this uh, sort of 
an early experience with uh, drinking uh, products that were historical to the region? Yeah, look, the, the, the main traditional beverage that's drunk in this area by the Nguini peoples, that's Kosa Zulu cluster of people, is, is in Komboti, which is a sort of basically like an undistilled sour mash. It's, it's a lacto-fermented um, sorghum and maize beverage. Um, the Kurika is more of a drink that was made by the Khoi, who are more commonly known as the Bushmen globally, the Khoi Sam cluster of people. And they, they didn't grow crops, so they, the only thing they could ferment was, was honey because that was the only real sugar they could find. And so in this little area, we have a cultural crossover between the Kosa and the Khoi. And the Kosa people have inherited the knowledge of how to make Kurika, which is a traditional African mead. And so, yeah, you know, I was a very experimental teenager. This was when I was 19. And, you know, when somebody, my old um, guru, he was very good at getting very drunk. And so if somebody hands you a, a bottle of something, you, 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 trust, you trust that person's um, re reputation for having been really blasted. And so at that point in my life, I, I enjoyed the fact that it, it was sort of semi-mind-altering. And as I got older, I looked at, how do we actually make it taste better as well? And what were your early beekeeping and mead making attempts? Uh, like, how did you go about doing them? Did you succeed? Look, we, we have um, bees that are closely related to the killer bees here. So they're very, very dominant bees and they move into absolutely everything. So as for pocket money, when I was a student, I realized I could make quite a lot of money doing bee removals. Yeah. Climb precariously onto people's roofs and you know rip the hearts out of beehives there and, and do these bee removals and then I'd always get a bit of really colourful honey out of that because you know often you'd do a bee removal and get you know 50 60 pounds of honey and then I, I learned that I could make some mead with that and either go and take it to parties for free and then get invited to a lot of parties or I could sell it so um, to, I tended to go with the getting invited to parties for free thing. And at that time, you know, we have no written knowledge of mead making in, in this part of South Africa at all. So I just thought that, you know, throwing some honey in a bucket and heating it to, to body temperature, 37 Celsius, that's what that 90 something Fahrenheit, and, um, you know, fermenting it from zero to 10% alcohol in you know, 48 hours was a good thing to do. And we used to drink this stuff. And then because I had no idea what I was doing, um, it seemed like a logical idea to try and use a continuous fermentation, which would, would allow us to, to streamline the fermentation. And using that, we actually produced some quite nice tasting, relatively refined meads. But that the entire process was a purely accidental process. I you know, vaguely looked at how my, um, my parents' gardener used to make Critica and said, well, how can I do that with the honey that I've got and get invited to lots of parties? So it was, it was a typical student improvisation thing. So at what point did um, science and technology meet this convergence with mead making? Okay, so basically, I had a, a friend who used to give me some advice on some work that I was doing, and his name was, was Dr. Winston Lukes. And Winston said to me, he said, oh, you know, this, this, this beverage you've been making, why don't you study it? Do, do some research on it for your, your honors degree. So in South Africa, we have a 
three-year program with a BSc, and then you do an honors afterwards, which would be the equivalent of, of um, your third year of, of a degree in the States. Um, because we, we have a 12-year high school program and then four-year postgraduate for, for university. So for my honors um, project, I, I, I worked on Critica and just did a little project on it. And then he said, well, why don't you enroll for a master's on that and actually look at doing it commercially? So it became an academic interest in, you know, once I'd been making me for about two years, it, it, it became academically fascinating. And then it ended up being the backbone of my PhD. So I blame my tertiary qualification on some guy that stole my bicycle. That's amazing. Uh, what were some of the main reasons you got into this field? Is there a, a natural preservation aspect that's important to you? Or is it just, uh, you know, more of your curiosity and bees and mead? Look, I mean, my, my parents are both conservationists. Um, my father from the fish side and my, my mother in terms of um, helping people develop the scientific understanding to better coexist on the planet with everything else that we have to live with. Um, so both of them have always taught me a sort of way of problem solving that says that if you don't help people find a use for the environment, they'll probably destroy it. And um, beekeeping is a fantastic use for the environment. You know, we keep bees and derive income from a forest. And if, if that person can't derive income from a forest, they're going to chop it down and burn it for fuel. So by be, by turning the um, you know the honey that grows on trees into money, um, you are able to help people make a bay forest. And we met Boy Boy Nebeleza, who is an absolute character. And Boy Boy um, is a beekeeper. And David, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, David, you actually wired the money direct into his bank account. This was a guy sitting in absolutely the middle of nowhere. And I mean, for Boy Boy, that money coming, sorry, the money coming into his account, David, from you, together with the picture that we WhatsApped him, he was able to go to Toyota Finance and prove that he had an income and they actually loaned him money to buy a little pickup truck. So that little story, since you were in Mazeppa Bay Forest, has actually developed into Boy Boy now being a person who has his own pickup truck and you know when you live in a mud hut a pickup truck is is a pretty impressive achievement and so now he doesn't live in a mud hut anymore he's been able to use that pickup truck to go and get concrete blocks and he's built a proper house with a roof and yeah so i mean that one little event where you purchased honey um in mazeppa bay has transformed the person's life and i think that's a fantastic conservation story because we've taken the market muscle of the United States and use that to create an opportunity to conserve a forest in the middle of nowhere in South Africa. And, and I, I just love that story because I think it's, yeah, I think it's a very united type of thing. Yeah. It's very united. rewarding for us too, to see this kind of effect. Uh, too often we lose that perspective that we're really having an effect on someone's life um, when we go out and we source some of this material. So it's not just a financial economic transaction. Uh, it's uh, directly affecting uh, someone and their community. And that's, uh, it's very rewarding. It's an important sidelight of, of our project there. You can be very proud. When you look at a lot of American producers in terms of alcohol production, there's not a lot of adventureism. It's, it's very rigid in structure and how people get from raw product to the end manufacturing product. Where does this 
curiosity that you have stemmed from and this sense of adventurism in what you produce? Where, where is that coming from? Look, I think it's a thing that David and I have worked on together. You know, we both are adventurers that enjoy cultural exploration and cultural preservation. So I think if you look at the Be United mission with most of their beverages, pretty much everything that I, I've seen the guy selling is an adventure, you know, from the Japanese sakis to the Italian beers to the French ciders to the thousands of other fascinating things they have. That's all a huge adventure. And so much of the next stage in our development as humans, I think is going to be around, you know, turning the adventure into conservation. Um, and preserving cultures, preserving plants, that's, that's, you know, my big thing that I enjoy. So, um, you know, I work all over in Africa and um, there's so many untold stories and so many unshared experiences that, that are sitting lurking in a forest somewhere in Africa that people in the rest of the world could gain a lot of excitement and health from. Because remember, the other thing that we forget is that the beverages that we produce, the mead, it's live. So all the biodiversity that's in a live mead is is biodiversity that's coming from really unusual places. And it's 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 got a lot of health benefits, you know, getting that biodiversity. Was there uh did the meadery start before your uh interactions with uh with David? Um were there other business ventures that you had uh in whether connection to the university? Um, or was Be United and David kind of instrumental in getting things going from the start? Look, the the, um, the objective of the meadery was to try and sell inordinately huge amounts of mead. That you know, that I was twenty something when I wrote my first business plan, and you know, you plug figures into Excel and you become convinced you're going to become a multimillionaire, and it's all very exciting, and you can change the world, and and we found that the local market hardly existed. Um, David introduced us um, to his market through Be United. Um, we were actually about to give up. So it, it was an incredibly fortuitous um, chain of events. And I, I had just completed my PhD and I had, when when we set up the business, Rhodes had um, Rhodes University, my, my alma mater, had, had invested a bit of money in setting up the meadery. And that money had flowed through my bank account, not my personal bank account, but my company bank account was on my profile. And so the bank manager, for some other, other reason, had just upgraded my credit card because it looked like I was earning a lot of money because all the investment had flowed through that account. Meanwhile, I actually wasn't earning a cent. And so what I did was I maxed out my credit card um, to go to the to the Mead Festival um, to... Um, <laughs> to meet David and see whether we could open a market to the States. Cause, and that allowed me to dot the, the last T on the last chapter of my thesis, which was to prove that mead could actually be exported. And what was that? Uh, can you tell us a little more about that experience of coming to the U.S. and um, meeting, uh, meeting David and uh, tasting products here and showing your products? Look, the, the trip to the States, um, I had 36 bottles of mead in my suitcase. And I think you're allowed to take three bottles into the States. And as I'd mentioned, I'd sort of maxed myself out financially to get to the States. And I, at that particular time, I had a, a lynx, a caracal as a pet. So I had this um, 
40 pound cat that used to sleep on my bed and scare people and so on. And just before I left for the States, the cat jumped up and peed on my suitcase. So I had this um, bright yellow stain on the front of my suitcase. And when I arrived um, in the States, and of course this was just after 9-11, so people were quite jumpy, and the very large and scary and recently emigrated from the Ukraine um, customs guy and two, two other people who were also quite intimidating looking people um, pulled me over and they said, son, what is in your suitcase? And I opened it up and of course there were 36 bottles of mead in there. And they said, we're gonna have to talk about this. And why did our dogs get, well, what have you got in here? Why did the dogs go nuts? Um, and I said, no, my cat, my cat peed on the suitcase. And I showed them where the cat had peed. And these guys were, they said, yeah, but our dogs are trained not to smell cat pee. And I said, well, this is not an ordinary cat. And I took out a picture of myself with my, my caracal, you know, draped over my shoulder. I mean, this, this, this was a, this, this cat made a lot of dogs look small. Um, so these guys were then, here's this nutty guy from Africa and they ended up posing for a photograph with me and they, they waved me through and I didn't end up having to pay duties on the bottles. So that was actually how, because my cat took a pee in my suitcase, I was actually successfully able to get 36 bottles of mead to the mead festival. And so it was one of these things where everything that could go wrong didn't and a couple of things that should go wrong did. Um, and the result was the mead made it to David. We, we, I think we won two medals. We had a good time and, and, um, yeah, it was touch and go, but it, 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 it happened. And then of course, meeting the, um, the other mead makers, you know, I, I had never met somebody else that made mead other than my parents' gardener and his mead was quite, um, an acquired taste. Um, it was rough. So, um, meeting the other mead makers, we met, um, uh, David from Redstone and, and Mark Baran from Medavina and a whole lot of guys from Canada and all over the world. And it was just lovely meeting the sort of, um, all the embryonic um, American needries that have now done really well for themselves. So it was an amazing experience. When you were tasting some of these meads that were made uh, commercially or homemade in the US, what did you make of them and the honey that was going into them? And how were people receiving the meads that you were making and specifically kind of, how did they feel about how you were approaching things? I, I think people viewed me as being a bit of an anomaly because nothing made sense about me. Um, because I had, you know, literally the way we went about making mead was to go and you know, interrogate traditional mead making style, which was still existing in Africa, which was the, you know, the critical system. And we adapted that and said, you know, the way people were making mead in Africa was semi-continuous. It wasn't a batch system. So we adapted it, made it fully continuous. And because, you know, I, I live in an area where nobody makes alcohol. I mean, they, you know, literally South Africa was dominated by South African breweries at that time and a bunch of people in the Western Cape that made wine. So, you know, the closest people making alcohol to me were 2000 kilometers away. And so I had no understanding of, of how alcohol is supposed to be made. I just adapted the way it was made by people in this area. And when I looked at the way people were making mead in, in the US, you know, there's an incredible biodiversity of absolutely beautiful honey, you know, from the, Alpine, Rocky Mountain, 
wildflower blooms to, you know, the sort of weird and wonderful little daisies that come up in Montana to, you know, right across the the northern part of the US, you've got those dandelion blooms and then, you know, goldenrod in the, you know, the, the east coast and, and all these other incredible honey. I think we even tasted some mead that was made with tupelo honey from Florida. And the thing that I picked up at the time was that everybody was using wine yeast to make it. Well, I gave a talk and I said that using wine yeast um, to make mead is a bit like playing Bach on a bongo drum. You can do it, but it takes a lot of skill. And what I've seen in the U.S. right since since then is there's been a huge pr proliferation of of um, mead appropriate yeast that have been developed, and and that really makes me happy because I think, you know, maybe maybe that little chat that we had at the mead festival with with all the brewers set them thinking that you know we they had to get back to the roots of mead, which is the traditional wild yeast that are found in honey, and and how to ferment properly with that and. and so no, I, I'm not sure, but I, I know that every time I go back to the States, the, the mead has improved in quality exponentially. I was going to ask uh, David about your perspective as someone who was uh, following things pretty closely as an insider. Do you feel as though uh, Garth's assessment is fair? Like, were you seeing the same things as someone who is on the ground uh, pretty regularly over here as far as the use of wine yeast or the the kind of quality and uh garth's sort of uh position in relation to what was going on here certainly i agree 100 that uh, people were treating mead in the past as a wine as a honey wine which it really it's its own standalone beverage and it is a uh, very rewarding to see that they're actually starting to take better care with their yeasts. But I found most interesting was how they started to concentrate more on the local honeys, uh, making a much more indigenous product that's native to their area. So that perhaps a mead brewed in Colorado was very different from a mead brewed in Maine, which was very different from a Tupelo honey mead uh, done in Florida. And I found that to be the most exciting advancement really is how people were embracing the local honeys uh, and not just a generic uh, internationally produced uh, uh, substance. Now, I wanna go back to uh, your uh, earlier mead making ventures, Garth, when you were uh, sourcing and, for and foraging for honey, where did you go and what were your interactions like with people when you were saying, hey, I, uh, I'm looking for some honey to do this? How did you approach these people and what were, your what were you hearing back from people? Look, the, the, the first, I mean, more often than not, when I would get honey, it would be a case of climbing up a ladder taking it out of a tree or out of the roof of a building. And we also had beehive, our own beehives. So we set up um, a lot of hives and um, started keeping bees on various farms. And of course, the big problem in South Africa is if you put beehives on somebody's farm, those bees, each one of them represents a party in a box. And then more often than not, will get stolen by somebody who wants to make mead. Um, so we found, we ended up having to train beekeepers who predominantly came from closer communities. And those beekeepers viewed beekeeping as an economic opportunity. And, and we, we actually trained well over probably 1,200, I'd say 
20 or 30 of them are still keeping bees and have, some of them have turned into quite large beekeepers. Not large, I mean, in the, in the US sense of tens of thousands, but I mean, people that are able to pay their kids school fees with the honey harvest, that sort of large. And so what would happen, I don't, if you look around the world, in most of your traditional cultures, bees are seen as being the ancestors. So in in South Africa, there, there's a little bit of a, I mean, it's, it's reasonably well publicized. You know, there was a bit of a racial divide caused by the apartheid incident. And that, you know, is still in a healing stage. And so there's a minor amount of distrust, you know, for instance, myself as a sort of pale looking person, if I go into an area where people are maybe a bit darker, they might view me as just being, you know, some white guy that comes and talks rubbish. But then as soon as I'd open a beehive, people would go, okay, well, the ancestors respect this guy, therefore we should listen to him. So it is an incredible cultural thing. And I've seen that work all over Africa, from the Congo to Zambia to Mozambique. If I go and open a beehive and people see that the bees don't sting this guy, um, because I've got a little trick that I do with the bees where I can work with them. And David David has the same trick because David's opened hives up with me up in the, the north of, of um, KwaZulu-Natal and also didn't get stung. And we, we would sit and work with the bees. And, and what it does is the people then think, okay, well, look, we're all on the same page. The ancestors respect this person. And then it, it opens up a quite a meaningful conversation where you then chat to the person about harvesting honey and that it's going to, to America. And it's, it's, it's a very interesting um, thing. And I mean, this, it morphed into one other story. Um, there was one of my first beekeepers, an amazing guy called Pumlani Horni, H-O-N-I, which is actually pronounced honey. Um, and Pumlani was from a farm called Faraway Farm, and he spoke very little English. And he lost his job on that farm, and um, I took him on as a beekeeper. And I'd been to a wedding in Canada in, in oddly enough, just before 9-11. So I was stuck in Canada for a little while because I was supposed to fly out on 9-11 and I couldn't get out. And so we went to Monroe's Meadery in, in Canada and um, saw a couple of beekeeping operations. And when I um, I got back, I, I told Pumlani and I, I said to him, I said, you know, when I was in Canada, my, my uncle Corwin took me to all these amazing um, meaderies and you're going to Canada. You must go to Canada one day to learn. And what he heard was that he was going to Canada. So he then told everybody in town that he would be going to Canada. And he was so excited about this. And I didn't want to break his heart by telling him, well, look, we actually don't have any money for it. And like a couple of days later, we actually won a prize. We, we, we won a couple of tens of thousands of dollars. So I purchased the ticket for Pumani to go over to Canada. And he worked bees in, in um, Ontario and um, Manitoba for about two months. And it completely changed his perspective on the world because you had a guy who, who had actually never seen the sea that suddenly flew over the sea and discovered there were places on the other side of the world and he learned to keep bees there. And Pumlani is actually now quite a successful beekeeper. Um, he, he probably has about 100 beehives and he's done very well for himself. And um, he was completely changed by learning that people do things differently in another part of the world. So that it opens up a story that's come out of the need, which is this opportunity for cultural exchange. 
Africa is never going to get ahead unless it actually understands how the rest of the world works. And beekeepers from Africa going to Canada or America and providing what they have, which is strength, because America has an aging beekeeping population and lots of young African people who are interested in bees because they made need can end up in the States as temporary work, workers assisting the American beekeeping industry and, and actually assisting producing honey more cheaply so mead in the States is more viable. So I think there are a whole lot of cross-pollinations that come out of what we're doing. So that's a really long and inexact answer to your question. <laughs> it paints a really good picture of, you know, how we can take drinks and types of alcohol that are native to one or ways of doing it and production from one culture and bringing it to others. It's it's a great cross-pollination. So I guess I'm a little curious of, I believe it's pronounced Kilika is the traditional beverage. Um, why is that important in the Eastern Cape of Africa? And what is kind of the history of it uh, among the different peoples who are native to Eastern Africa? Look, the, the um, Kilika is a, is a very ancient beverage. Uh, you know, if you look around on cave, cave paintings in this area, you can see paintings which basically depict the recipe of how to make it from when the sand people were dominant in the area. Now the sand, you know, for about 150,000 years were the dominant people in Africa. And they are some of the best honey gatherers on the planet. They, they can follow one bee from a flower right back to the beehive. And um, as the sand basically got absorbed into other cultures, sand people have a click language and the click language transferred into the Kosas, who are primarily Nguni genetically, but have a small amount of sand that is mixed in. And as the sand mixed in, they inherited the clicks. So East Kosa, the click and Kudika and all those clicks are part of those ancient um, click languages of the sand. So all African beverage, other than Nkumboti, which is the sorghum beer, and, and that is an absolute tragedy because the, the Liquor Act that was promulgated during the height of apartheid hasn't really been adapted to include traditional African beers. So by calling it Kudika mead, we were able to get through a little legal loophole in South Africa and make it legal to produce it. But the bizarre thing is that people in our area are willing to pay a fortune on imported Scottish whiskey, but are actually not proud of their traditional culture and, and the needs that were made by their ancestors. And it's one of the saddest effects of, of um, colonialism in South Africa is that people are not proud of their culture. They actually have turned their back on it. And by exporting needs to the States and me showing pictures of, of the fact that you know you can buy our meat on tap and Fifth Avenue and things like that. I've communicated that to local Corsa people who then suddenly become proud in their culture. And it's well flip it. If it gets drunk overseas and it gets exported, it must be good. And then people start being proud in their own culture. It's I guess a bit like Scottish people. They drink cheap whiskey in Scotland, they export the good stuff to everybody else. Um, they're not that proud of their whiskey. And that has changed in recent years. But 10, 15 years ago, Scottish people on average drank bad whiskey. Um, People in South Africa paid a fortune for good Scottish whiskey. So I think cultural exchange helps people actually realize that their cultures have value. And exporting our mead to the States has created 
an interest in the Kulika and the fact that it actually is something that people in other countries are willing to pay for. And that is something that then helps people here regain confidence. Apart from mead, are there other honey or uh, products that use local agriculture and that are uh, historically tied that can be produced or that are produced that have an export application to achieve that same goal? There's one of the things that I've always had a great interest in is um, the marula tree. So the marula tree is is a very productive um, tree that occurs in the woodlands of, of um, the northwest, northeast, sorry, I'm getting my directions wrong, northeast of, of South Africa and up into Mozambique, Zimbabwe. Right, it, it's a very productive. And um, marula beer is quite an interesting um, beverage that is made by the Changan, the Tsonga, the, the Shona, the Venda, and the Setswana peoples. And also a little bit by the Northern Zulus and Sepedi and people like that. And basically that beverage can also be distilled to produce a drink which was known as Mampuru. And if you drank a lot of Mampuru, you acted like a Mampara, which is a, a slang term in South Africa for somebody who's being really silly. But um, I think that there definitely is an export market and a local market um, developing for the Marula. I was actually chatting to some guys on one of the distilling groups that I'm on here. Um, we had a probably about a six-month alcohol ban in South Africa during the height of COVID last year. So a lot of people have become good at making their own beverages from Marula. A couple of guys who are looking at going commercial and producing um, distilled products from the Marula, um, making Marula brandy. And that was a traditional beverage that was made by the Sepedi people. And um, it was made with a clay pot still. So they would ferment with about six or seven percent, a mixture of um, marula and honey to get the um, alcohol a little bit higher. And then they would distill that and they produce the a beverage which um, was colloquially it was known as Mampur. Um, the one of the petty chiefs was Mampur, and he used to make Mampur. And when the Afrikaans Trekburs met um, Mampur, um, they discovered Mampur, which is actually considered to be a traditional Afrikaans um, beverage. And um, so I think they, you, you'll see a lot of interesting beverages coming out of Africa in the next 20 or 30 years as people regain their cultural confidence. The only experience I think Americans have with the marula fruit is there is a uh, amarula, which is a cream liqueur that's available uh, pretty ubiquitously here in the States, uh, has a picture of the elephant on it, but based off of that fruit. Uh, another uh, beverage that we were playing around with and actually used as an ingredient in the meads, Garthy, recall some of the coffees that uh, you picked up for that first batch of uh, the coffee mead. Yes, that, that's uh, wild or semi-wild coffee that just grows in the Transkei region of, of South Africa. Um, that's a, yeah, it's a, a zone that is notorious for coffee and cannabis. Um, both, both, um, both are very strong. Um, and I think the story there, David, is that the, yeah, that the coffee for, I think it just washed up from a ship that sank. And then um, the guys then commercialized that coffee strain and yeah, still produce it. 
in in relatively small quantities. Um, and yeah, I mean that the coffee berries can be fermented. Um, and I think in Ethiopia, coffee berries are fermented into a pretty strong beverage, you know, along with the tej that they make, um, they ferment coffee berries and, and produce a terrifyingly sort of indigenous Red Bull type of thing that's just full of caffeine and alcohol. <laughs> yeah. The Method Accidental Project uh, is something that now is we're, we're seeing bottles of in the U.S. Uh, how did this sort of come about as an extension of the relationship that you talked about before? And what sort of communication uh, occurred to make it happen? That, that's a, a funny story that goes back to Baobab Tree in Angola. So when I was in junior school, I had a delightful teacher called Ian Sati. And Ian Sati worked with a, in, in the bush war that South Africa fought in Angola. So basically there was a communist movement down through Angola and South Africa was conveniently um, opposed to communism. So it, it was funded in, in terms of going and protecting the oil in Angola. And, and a lot of young, at that stage in South Africa, all young white men were conscripted into the army for three years. And so my teacher was in um, the battalion that had um, Bushman trackers, sand trackers. And he told me the story when, when we were kids, he said, oh, they, after the rainy season, their trackers would always climb up baobab trees and they would take their little metal military hat and they'd scoop it into the baobab tree. And if the heart of the baobab tree always rots out and gets a bit rotten and they, and bees move in there. So when it rains, the, the beehives would get flooded. And then he'd the guys would do this and he said then you know basically if, if something like that happened you, you didn't have trackers for three days um until the tree had been drained and um it sort of stuck in my head and then years later i was driving back from pretoria after visiting a girlfriend that i had there as a student and doing a lot of bee removals for pocket money and the the drum of um honey that i had on the back of my pickup truck my bucky um the, the, the lid blew off in the middle of a thunderstorm and the honey all got wet and so I couldn't sell the honey and I couldn't make mead with it because it had sort of gone semi-rotten so I just ended up leaving the barrel under a tree somewhere and I thought well if I put a black bag over it it might melt the wax and at least I can get the wax out of it and, and then that project just went nowhere for about three years and eventually I opened that bucket and we tasted some of the stuff inside and it tasted like sherry and it was quite a celebration because we had accidentally transformed an accident into into quite a very, very nice tasting um, drum of stuff. And so that was why it became the method accidental. It literally happened by accident. And then we recreated that accident regularly and, and um, discovered that if you mix 50% honey, 50% water, you throw a couple of berries in there, whatever, it just naturally turns into mead. It doesn't, never turns into anything else. Uh, we were duplicating what happened in nature in in the in Angola to my teacher in 1972. And for you, David, uh, how did you become involved in this uh, from the start? Take us to the moment you're getting on a plane to go to South Africa. 
Well, it actually happened after the plane had landed in South Africa. Uh, Garth was kind enough to share, I believe, with some of that original mead, had uh, perhaps just one bottle left and said, oh, you really should try this. This is uh, remarkable stuff. And it really contrasted to what we were doing uh, with the regular Makana products. of course, the light bulb goes on in the head at that point. You say, wow, there is definitely a limited audience for this, but it's an audience that would embrace it. Uh, certainly, the quantity we could produce with a, a system like the Method Accidental isn't going to ever be able to sustain a, uh, a large product line. Uh, that's what we have the Ekilika uh, for. But for the crew that really enjoys the interesting flavors and appreciates the cultural heritage, this was a real chance for us to to play, really, and to try some experimentation. Uh, so we conceived of going around Africa, going around South Africa, visiting uh, various communities, picking up some of the local honeys and uh, combining that with rainwater and any local fruits, as Garth says, that happened to pop in there at the time or just the uh, the bee carcasses and larvae themselves all are contributing to some very interesting fermentation flavors and uh, kicking it off. And uh, be darned, it works uh, fairly well and is, makes some very interesting, albeit unpredictable products. When you were collecting the honeys for this uh, for this project, were there specific places you were going or uh, people you were uh, talking to? Well, it actually goes back. We were just talking about the Marula. So years ago, I was um, contracted by a guy called Murawani Mampuru, who was the great, 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 great grandson of the chief who used to distill Mampur from Marulas. And Murawani had had, um, become a biotechnologist, and he was trying to set up a a brewery making Marula beer and distilling it into Mampuru up in Cozy Bay. And when I'd been up there um, doing some work, um, we had also heard about a beekeeping project there. And um, the sad thing is that Murawani unfortunately got shot short, shortly after that. So that that sort of, that ended that. But I had communicated to David about the fact there was the, this, you know, beekeeping project on the border with Maputo in really, really the most remote part of South Africa. So David was very excited and said, well, let's go up there and, and um, and go and purchase some honey from that beekeeping project. And um, yeah, that was how that whole adventure started. Um, yeah, and that was really, it, it, it was a long drive. Um, and it's a chance for us to involve uh, people, especially now in the COVID age. It's what we like to call uh, culinary tourism, really. Uh, people in this country can't go visit such remote locations. They can't even get to South Africa anyway. This is a chance for us to bring some of the cultural experiences to their table, uh, deliver it to them. So it's kind of a reverse uh, tourism idea. But it's quite exciting when you uh, when you visit some of these places. They're not necessarily uh trusting of your of your motives uh perhaps you're there to exploit them and it's uh, something that you'd have to do really to convince them that yes we're just on the up and up here and we're trying to represent uh, your community and represent your area and we really do want to uh, help out the locals and even if you're not getting everyone's cooperation it's uh, very rewarding as i say to uh, be able to deposit money into someone's account who will turn around and improve their life or improve their daughter's or granddaughter's life, for example, just by the purchase of a few gallons of honey. 
but you can go around and you can sample in different regions. And the first thing you know when you're hanging out with Garth in South Africa is that Garth knows everyone in South Africa and everyone knows him. He has uh, preceded us uh, a few years before having installed some of these uh, beehives and trained some of these people. So we are able to leverage that, uh, those introductions and, uh, and just really visit different places and, and collect different honeys. It's, uh, it's remarkable, really. David, just, just to, to jump in there, um, do you remember the, the, the granny that we bought, the gogo, as we would affectionately call? Of Mom, course. Mom, Mom Konto. Now, Mom Konto, when we bought that honey, I actually looked on the geotag. We were two kilometers from the border with Mozambique. So we were nearly, I mean, those bees actually were the honey that, that, that we purchased that i mean number one that was the first time that lady had ever actually earned money in her whole life and she was probably in in her early 70s um her own money and secondly um that honey was from two countries because the bees don't recognize borders so that was that was a really cool adventure in so many different ways and it's a it's kind of a fun project too when you're able to track these uh, hives down and you actually get the coordinates and you can introduce people to these coordinates and they can check out google earth and actually draw up an image of the hives and how they are actually just sitting out there so while you're enjoying your method accidental mead you type in the coordinates and see the actual hives from which the honey was harvested i, I find that personally fascinating and, and David, just to add on to that, another thing that's really fascinating about that um, is that those bees in that Cozy Bay area, um, they forage a lot on the Ilala, pine, pine, uh, Ilala palm, which is a type of palm tree. And with the work that I've been doing in rum recently, I've learned how important these Ilala palms are. They're very rich in Schizosaccharomyces pombe, which is a really fun... Um, yeast that produces a lot of esters and fusel alcohols and all sorts of funny things. And, you know, you, you really don't get a rum flavor in rum unless you've got schizosaccharomyces. But in the mead, um, we've done some scan electron microscopy work and we've seen that schizosaccharomyces in the mead yeast as well. So in many ways, um, that, you know, that Cozy Bay honey for somebody that enjoys beverages that have been made with interesting microbes, you know, that provides you with the schizosaccharomyces and all the tropical yeast that give you all those lovely esters. And a lot of fun. What I found very illuminating on the trip too was the uh, variety of honeys. Uh, we all tend to think of honey as being, oh, somewhat the same color and the, and the same uh, viscosity and whatnot. But we're harvesting some of these honeys. They're, they're nearly black in some locations. And other times you just uh, go, you know, a few kilometers away and they would be uh, taking on a greenish tint. Uh, and then you would have the yellow honey and whatnot. So you see in the field the, the real diverse uh, production of, uh, depending on the local uh, flora. Thank you. So for those of us who think honey comes from a plastic container that uh, looks like a bear, why do these honeys have these uh, different colors and uh, how do you approach them from the sensory perspective of can we, can we taste uh, that color or can we taste 
the fruits and the uh, flora that uh, aided those bees in their journeys? Well, that, look, that, that's a, a question with an incredibly complicated answer, but the basic answer is that every flower has a unique profile of terpenes and other flavor compounds. And those flavor compounds concentrate into the honey. So in a country like South Africa, where you've got you know, tens of thousands of species of plants, it means that the honey that you get from one place and the honey you get from another place, as David mentioned, you know, could be completely different species composition where you could have a variation of a thousand different species of flowering plants between one area and another. So I've had situations where I've taken honey out of one beehive and another beehive. And the honey from the two beehives tasted completely different because I guess the bees in the one hive found like a little pocket of some plant over there that tasted like this. And the next bees found a pocket of some other plant that tastes like that. And they kept the secret apart from each other as, as any, any organism that's onto money will do. You don't share where you're getting your loot. So the, um, the bees basically, yeah, they, they can really compartmentalize honey and, um, we have a new project that we're starting, which is to actually produce honey in a semi-desert area because those semi-deserts are exceptional in terms of the diversity. You can have a little thunderstorm that'll happen in one place at one time of year when there's a specific funny little succulent plant that flowers when the photo period is exactly that. And if there's rain, that plant will flower and it'll sit and quietly wait a hundred years until that happens again. Um, so you can end up with honey from one area that you would never get in, in your lifetime again. And, and that's the sort of level of uniqueness we're trying to aim at by using beehives to harvest floral biodiversity is to basically provide a situation where if you can get a bottle of this, well, you're never going to get it again. It's, We're trying to move beyond the idea of a single varietal honey into really a, a single hive honey. If you can produce enough uh, the actual honey to make a viable mead product out of it. It might be super limited in availability, super limited in quantity, but that shouldn't stop us from tackling the project. And the, David, the, there's a funny story that weaves into that whole thing. Because remember when you were here last time, we spoke about how do we make a beehive where we can actually make the mead in the beehive? Absolutely. And as you know, we've started the the clay pot beehive project and in order to to fully understand that project we have to go back to 1990 when there were two naughty little boys myself and a guy called Richard Pullen and that was during a stage when South Africa was a highly militarized society and we for reasons known only to ourselves we still actually don't understand why we thought this funny we pinched a military explosive and threw it in my friend's backyard as a practical joke and we then got arrested and sentenced to a lot of community service, luckily, not proper jail. But um, among other things, we had to fish rose bushes out of my friend's trees. And it was just a very stupid thing that we did. And you know, little kids do stupid things when they're 15. Um, and as the, the dust from that settled, um, Richard and myself both took stock of our lives and realized that neither of us actually really wanted to go to jail. So Richard dedicated his life to becoming a potter and I decided I wanted to become a scientist. And the result of me wanting to become a scientist was I actually represented South Africa at the International Science Expo in Amarillo, Texas in 1993. And um, Richard 
likewise won a scholarship to go and study under one of the best potters in South Africa. And so the two of us went on our divergent little paths. And after David, after you and I chatted about how to solve this problem of producing a single hive that you can actually ferment the um, beeswax and the honey from that hive in the actual beehive, we spoke about doing the traditional African clay pot hive. And I've been speaking to Richard for years and years about trying to do this. And he's quite a recalcitrant chap, but he's very talented. And this COVID year has actually finally inspired him to, and uh, some, um, some encouragement from Matthias as well at the United has, has encouraged Richard to, to start building his, his first um, clay pot beehive, which as we speak is actually sitting in the kiln right now. <laughs> so soon we'll be fermenting in, in the actual hives that produce the honey. So what we'll do is we'll crack that clay pot off when it's full of honey. We'll mash all the wax up and the honey, and then we'll let the wild yeast and the rainwater from that area actually ferment. And we'll do that fermentation in the apiary where we harvested the bees from, because the desert's safe. People won't steal your, they won't steal your honey or your alcohol. A little natural defense for that. That, that's, uh, that sounds like an incredible project. And this, uh, I'm going to play a clip now from uh, an interview we did previously with Matthias and David, and I'm going to let uh, Matthias tell us a little bit about uh, how your uh, meads came over to the U.S. for the Method Accidental project. The environment we, we are working in about four or five or six years ago, I don't quite remember Dr. Cambrai, um, sent me an email and said, okay, I just got rid of my bottling line. And I said, and why would you ever do that? And I said, oh, well, you know, it, it, it broke down and it's no good and blah, blah. And I said, okay, so what are we going to do now? You know, you're down in South Africa and we are up here. We cannot, you know, since you, how do you want to get your meat you know, to us? You have to bottle it. And he said, no, I, I will just put them, I, you know, we'll buy together some wonderful wine barrels and I put the liquid into the wine barrels and I ship them in a 20 foot container to you. And I said, okay, and then, oh yeah, then you have wine barrels and then you bottle. And I said, we don't really have a bottling line. Yeah, well, then you have to buy a bottling line. So, so we had to buy a small bottling line on top of it to, to make it work. So of course you buy a bottling line to uh, to bottle it. Uh, I think that's uh, an, an interesting quote. Uh, uh, obviously, you know you have to bring the product over. So uh, I know the million dollar question that everyone's asking is why did you get rid of your bottling line and uh, why was it important to uh, send the me the meads over in the wine barrels? Uh, the, the well, the reason for the bottling line. Um being got rid of was, um, it was a whole complicated set of messes that's just the uniquely South African story. But basically I had a guy that tried to pinch the meadery and ended up with the bottling line. But yeah, it, it was long and complicated and uh, very messy. And um, it was a good thing because um, trying to run a bottling line in the Eastern Cape in South Africa is very challenging. From our perspective, putting the mead into the wine barrels added a little bit more complexity and it took a little bit of pressure off of us for when we wanted to release it to, to market. We could let it sit in these barrels and uh, undergo a little bit of fermentation and uh, 
pick the appropriate time to bottle it up. So we had that little bit of luxury, and uh, I think it made for a uh, the next level in the product. And David, just to add to that, um, one of the great things about a bottle, I mean a barrel, is that you don't need a forklift for it. And I think that's probably why they were invented, is because they were invented, you know, probably one and a half thousand years before forklifts were. Good point. And, we do have pictures of you rolling those barrels. That's right. Yeah, myself and Pumzi and Chris, um, we roll the barrels out and normally it invariably rains or does something terrible when it happens, but um, that rain doesn't happen often here. But yeah, getting getting the barrels into a shipping container is a lot easier than getting bottles in. And so now uh, Be United has these barrels that uh, when they are emptied, uh, you can do interesting things with those as well, which is uh, um, a little rabbit hole, uh, its own rabbit hole in a way. Uh, David, what's happening with the wine barrels that are, have been emptied uh, in Connecticut? Well, we work very closely with OEC Brewing, uh, and they have appropriated some of those barrels for uh, use in their own products. Uh, they very much like to age uh, things in ex-wine barrels, ex-mead barrels in this case as well. It's important to note that we don't really clean these that much because we want to preserve a lot of the natural flora and fauna uh, to add a little bit of complexity during fermentation. However, some of the barrels uh, perhaps have acetified and we can use them to prepare large batches of vinegars uh, for other projects or just for our own use perhaps. No shortage of uh, need for barrels for sure. And uh, for this project as well, tell me a little bit about the sourcing of those barrels in the first place. Look, I think um, that that story ends with a fascinating chap called Hilke, who both David and myself know quite well. I think um, after David visited me the last time, he went down to visit Hilke and actually phoned me and said that, that he was busy drinking a an interesting combination. It was a beer that was fermented with, with some mushrooms in it, and it was like a really fascinating experience. And so, you know, Hilke is a... South African German who has managed to find every unique little story that he can find from behind every little tree and bush that exists in the country. And so what we normally do is we chat to Hilke and we say, Hilke, can you go and find some interesting barrels? And so when Hilke finds an interesting barrel, it's a seriously interesting barrel with a proper pedigree. I mean, I think the last batch of barrels he got for us were from Kanonkop and um, Rupert and Rothschild, um, winery and they were really quite beautiful barrels and they they still had the lees in them and then the previous oh, yeah every time he manages to find the most amazing barrels they've had a mixture of white wine and red wine and all sorts of interesting things in them and and so by the time they get to us the the biodiversity that is in those barrels is just incredible and yeah so sourcing them we we don't want just a barrel from some mass market winery it's got to be some interesting little winery that hides behind a mountain somewhere that has a good story with it. And, and Hilco knows all those guys. So we always get that. Kind of shifting into a sustainability route and uh, looking at the unique biomes of Africa, um, especially in South Africa, there's so many different biomes and they're very, very fragile. How do you translate all these different uh, 
unique flowers and trees and pollens that the bees are picking up in the honey and translate them into the barrels? What is kind of the process of choosing these different honeys and blending them into a specific barrel to get this unique flavor? Look, the, the whole process is to try and make it as accidental as possible. So I think a, a classic example is, David, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a barrel there that you guys have, which is the doctor, doctor, doctor mix. So that's me and then Dr. Fulke van Lingeling and Dr. Claudia Kalinski, who are two um, beekeeping friends of mine who had bees out in the mountains just outside Grahamstown, which oddly enough, Grahamstown's now called Makanda. And we are Makana Midri. So, um, so just outside Makana, um, there's a, a little range of mountains, and there is a tree that grows on those mountains called Papia capensis. And this tree requires approximately a meter of rainfall a year in order to become established, and it needs that rainfall for for a hundred years. So basically, in the past four thousand years, that has happened three times. 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and 800 years ago. So all of the trees in that area, either 4,000, 2,000, or 800 years old. And these trees, um, Papia capensis, produce about every seven years. They get their act together and they'll just flower. And that one barrel that we got was from a, a freak flowering of Papia capensis. And literally, we just happened to have beehives there and the, there was a thunderstorm and all the trees flowered and you know, that, that will happen again, maybe in seven years. So it's quite a, quite a treat, but this is what we find with so much of the biodiversity here is, is it's a case of if the rain happens at the right time, that funny thing that's hiding in a corner under a bush, they will flower and you'll get honey from it. And the next year the rain happens two weeks later and you get honey from an entirely different um, tree and or plant or bush or whatever it's going to be. And, you know, my life, what I'm 40, four or 45 years old now. And I mean, I've grown up in this area and, and I've had years where I'll go to an area, I'll see flowers that I've never seen in my life before. You know, places, I mean, I've got a hill that I walk um, every day with my dogs just outside my house. And this year there's something bizarre that's flowering up there. I, I don't know what it is yet. It's some sort of ground orchid. And I've never seen that flower before. And the bees are going to it. I can send you a picture of it. Looks like a little leopard flower. Capture that honey, will you? And so do you view this, when you capture these honeys, do you feel like you're capturing something that will never happen again, something that's so unique? And the only way we can really experience this is through consuming the honey in this way? Um, definitely. You know, I think that with the Method Accidental Project, what we're aiming to do is is literally that that bottle, if you manage to get it, that bottle that you're going to get is, is going to be <laughs> the bottle that you're going to get. And if you get another bottle another time, it's going to be completely different. You know, this is not like a Cabernet Sauvignon where the basic characteristics of a Cab Sauv grape are approximately the same no matter where you grow them in the world, but a little bit of the terroir comes in and gives you a small, small little tickle that an experienced winemaker can or cannot determine. Um, but in these cases, you're dealing with every year, you've got a cocktail of different flowers that are flowering and the ratio of those flowers is going to be so different every year that the honey will never be the same. There, there's an example 
when I was a student years ago, I actually went and there was a guy who had a, a scrapyard and he had an office in a shipping container and he phoned me and he said, no, there's a swarm of bees that has moved into a shipping container. And we have a plant here called Impepu, which is a form of sage. It's, it's, it's used by people to speak to their ancestors. You burn it and inhale the smoke and it takes you to a new dimension. Um, and, um, this impepu, I think, is actually a noxious weed in California now. But basically, the impepu had flowered heavily that year, and the honey was pure impepu. And we we collected the stuff, and I was convinced that maybe some engine oil had got on the honey, so I threw it all away. And last year, the, this beehive in my backyard tasted exactly the same when the impepu was flowering, and I realized that this was impepu, impepu honey. And it's, it's, it's a honey that you, you definitely don't want to eat that before you go to sleep. Um, you will have very bad dreams. Or maybe I've just got horrible ancestors. But um, it, 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 bring, it puts you in contact with, with um, unusual thoughts. So you have that element of, of honey where you can have you know, bioactive compounds that can concentrate in, into the honey. And we've never managed to get enough in pepper honey to make a mead, but we'll definitely make a big splash about that when we do, um, because it's it's a very, very culturally significant plant. Um, in Europe, they call those sages sage, because, you know, he, he consumed a bit of sage tea and he became a sage person. And in Africa, the diviners sage are, are what people traditionally here would use when they want to communicate with their ancestors and find out why they're being punished with for instance, locust plagues that we were talking about earlier and things like that, you would you would um, consume in Pepu and that would give you an indication of what's going on. So you've got this fascinating cultural bio, biological history that we can capture in a bottle. And, and that's really what we want to work on. And so with, with everything blooming in such a randomized fashion, how do you go about choosing where to place the hives when it seems every time these flowers bloom, you don't really know what you're getting. What, what is the decision-making process when you choose the position of hives? Look, the primary driver in South Africa is just finding a place where you can put your bees where they're not going to get stolen by people, um, mauled by baboons, or vandalized by honey badgers. Um, and then if you've managed to find a place where you, you've minimized the human risk, the baboon risk, and the honey badger risk, the next thing is to try and find a place where, you know, you, you don't have buffalo. Because I've kept bees on game reserves. Game reserves are great places to keep bees because they're lions, and therefore your beehives don't get stolen. Um, but the problem with bees is that buffalo are really, really dumb, and they knock the beehives over at nighttime because they, they're idiots. Buffalo is sort of like a cow on steroids um, and it, it literally has nothing going on in its head so you know it, it just walks and, and there, we kept bees on a place called Kwanwe private game reserve for a couple of years and the buffalo just wrecked the hives um, so it, it's a case that you have to try and find a place where your beehive will survive long enough for you to get a crop and I've recently found a couple of friends that I was at school with who have farms which are on deserts <laughs> and so we're going to be concentrating on desert honey um, because the biodiversity is incredible and the number of things that want to destroy your beehives are somewhat less 
Look, I mean, to, to elaborate on the, the, the same, uh, let, let me call it a semi-desert. It's not really a desert. So it's a semi-desert where we're going to be keeping bees. And um, when I started school in Grahamstown, there was another guy in my class called Andrew Barker. And I grew up in an Afrikaans-speaking area, so I couldn't actually speak English. And Andrew grew up in a Kosa-speaking area, so he couldn't speak English either. So we're these two weird kids that would sit there and suck our thumb and not understand what the teacher was saying. And we both eventually learned to speak English. And now many years later, we, we are, are friends and again, and looking at how to develop beekeeping on his farm. Now, what Andrew's done is he's trying to reverse two centuries of bad farming practices. And the bees are key to that because by increasing the number of bees, you shift your biome away from grass to herbs and succulents and succulents cool down at night because they oddly enough photosynthesize at night and they so they store a thing called crashation acid during the day and then at night time they use that to drive their photosynthetic cycles and when they do that they get cold and when they get cold they condense moisture onto their leaves which then drips down on the ground and, and actually increases your rainfall in a desert area so by keeping bees in a karoo as we call it biome you can regenerate the biome and you can reverse the damage that two centuries of bad farming practice have had by destroying the succulent biome. And we can also pollinate those succulents so that they produce more seeds. And by keeping bees in these areas, we'll have an accelerated rehabilitation of, of an absolutely exceptional biome. Um, so that is, that's our objective. And, and the byproduct of that is that we'll produce some mead that'll taste good. And in conjunction with these uh, environmental uh, sustainability endeavors, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the other ways that you're supporting your community in achieving these goals? Yeah, look, you know, when when I um, finished writing up my my thesis, I, I wrote a couple of fun projects at the end, and I just said that you know it'd be lovely to produce me that was made with biofuel. So out of that, you know, I set up a little factory making biodiesel and we ran our, our vehicles on biodiesel. And then I got interested in bioethanol. And that's mainly what I do now for a living is, is working in the, the ethanol industry, producing in the ethanol and industrial levels. So I have business partners from Mauritius who we work with and, and we help people make ethanol, which is used as a biofuel. And we also started a wind farm in Grahamstown. Originally, I just wanted one turbine um, you know, to produce electricity for the meadery and, and that's not economically viable. So eventually we ended up working with, with a, at the time, a student from France called Kevin Minkoff. And we got Kevin excited about the idea of, of um, getting a wind farm going. And Kevin and Louis um, persuaded a French investor to come to South Africa and they dragged EDF behind them. And now Energeta France are one of the bigger renewable energy investors in South Africa. So um we a whole lot of funny things came out of this adventure down the path of beekeeping one is that my town is now basically carbon neutral it, it, it produces more renewable energy than it consumes fossil fuel energy um number two you know the biofuel thing that came out of that has has been a, a learning experience for a lot of people and has has catalyzed a lot of young scientists often in a direction and, and a lot of specifically uh, closer people gained um, an understanding that science can change their lives. And 
you know, also by having achieved all of these things and having built a little bit of street cred in the local community, I'm, I'm able to be particularly rude to underperforming politicians. So um, that's really important because South Africa is currently falling apart. And the reason it's falling apart is because of mismanagement. And so if you have, you know, as a, for me, as a paler sort of South African, there, there, there's a, a certain amount of historical reason why one may not be allowed to speak one's mind, but I, I can. Um, and it's, it's a very useful position to be in because obviously being a scientist, I can see that technology can add a lot of value to a lot of people's lives. And most people can't transmit that lesson, but because the ancestors work with me with producing honey, I'm able to transmit that message and be very forceful about the things that we need to change in South Africa. And I don't get put in a little box and not listened to. Um, so there are a lot of funny things that come out of this adventure and it's, it's great. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's really lovely having um, the support from the US market in terms of, and specifically Be United's and David Matias's um, buy-in because it allows us to make a difference. And, um, you know, differences need to be made very quickly here else the whole place is going to go down in flames. Is beekeeping a profession people from uh, all walks of life can easily be interested in or access? The only thing is I've found that the people that are most likely to become beekeepers that I've met tend to be dentists, lawyers, and farmers. Now the farmer bit I can understand. I've never understood why dentists are drawn to beekeeping and lawyers. And, you know, maybe, um, you know, you just, but I, I know that in Germany, the biggest single profession that involve in beekeeping are actually lawyers. And I've picked that up in South Africa as well. In the rural areas, you know, the reason for people being driven to beekeeping is desperation. It's a way to access an income. And, you know, there are very few, I mean, we've got 70% unemployment in the area around here. So, you know, if you go and say to somebody, well, look, you can get some money by looking after some insects that sting you, um, the person's going to say yes. And so that's why we have quite a high failure rate on those beekeepers, because a lot of people didn't actually want to be beekeepers. They were just becoming beekeepers because they had to do something. So I've found that the people that make the best beekeepers in our area tend to be Sangomas, the um, traditional healers. Um, and they, as a group of people, have a lot of cultural knowledge and a fascination in beekeeping because the bees are the ancestors. So as a profession that in Africa is drawn to beekeeping, I would say that your Sangomas and Ikrichas, the medicine people, are the ones that are most drawn to. And uh, how do you sort of communicate your skills? Uh, because you were, you've spoken about uh, training a number of people uh, in beekeeping and sharing your knowledge and that being an important uh, part of economic empowerment and livelihood empowerment. Uh, how do you communicate with people uh, who you may not share a common language with? Uh, through Pumlani, the guy that I mentioned, who comes from Faraway Farm, um, <laughs> the man from Faraway. Um, Pumlani is a fantastic communicator. He has the equivalent of, I think, a grade one education, completely self-educated, and he, um, him and I communicate by WhatsApp. And 
if I get contacted by people that need beekeeping training, I put them directly in contact with Punlani now, and he negotiates the whole deal, you know, what the fees are, how he gets there, the whole thing. So in terms of beekeeping training, it's become an organic system where it's self-fueled from the from the 9-11 catastrophe, because because of 9-11, I went and saw Manra's Beedri and accidentally told Pumlani he was going to Canada and Pumlani went to Canada and got catalyzed and has become a, a changer. And so it's, it's one of the, you, you can never predict how stuff happens, but as you get older, it happens more and more strangely and creepily that you see these, these um, connections in the universe. And why is being an equitable empowerment driven company important to you? And what does this mean in, uh, South Africa in 2021? Okay, I mean, to, to be completely honest about that question, in, I mean, I had a pretty good life as a, growing up as a nominally white person in South Africa, and I got a lot of opportunities. Kumlani, on the other hand, got no opportunities. So the only way we're going to fix this country is if you use the opportunities that I got to create opportunities for somebody that didn't get them. And that's essentially the equitable transfer. It's never about transfer of money. You know, you can transfer money to somebody that doesn't know how to earn money and they will spend the money and then not have any money. But if you transfer knowledge, you transfer the ability to um, empower oneself. And the thing that I have really worked on my whole life is, is methods to transfer technologies that allow cultures not to go extinct. Also, culture will go extinct in the next 200 years because it's currently unsustainable. It consumes resources faster than it produces them, and that, that's the recipe for disaster. If one transfers knowledge with an outsider's perspective and say, you know, hey, guys, it's critical that you guys make, that stuff has the ability to add value to your, your ecosystem so that you can earn a living and become sustainable. That conversation is a hard conversation to have, but it's a conversation that we have to have all over the world is how people can access their cultures that there may be aspects of their culture they might be shy about or ashamed about and turn that into money because cultures that succeed turn themselves into money and that, that that's what i'm trying to do yeah. is to use the head start i got in life to help other people get a head start in life and uh in looking and in learning a little more about the metery uh, I learned that it is uh, an affirmative business enterprise. This was something that was new to me uh, as a term. Uh, what does that mean for people that may not be familiar with that? Uh, and how is how is it in conjunction with some of the goals that you just outlined? Look, there, there was a stage in South Africa's history where, where um, you know, Nelson Mandela's, Mandela's vision of a rainbow nation and so on resulted in, in, in people... Um, looking at the concept of, of creating, you know, businesses where the equity that somebody who was maybe black might bring into that business was the fact that they were black. And so that was called black economic empowerment or, you know, it, and it's largely been a failed, um, exercise, um, because it's, it's, it, it just, it actually doesn't really work. Um, so what we had originally done was to try and create a affirmative business, which was, you know, fully compliant with black economic empowerment, directors of government and so on. And what I realized in that process is that the real economic empowerment was the story of Pumlani and the various beekeepers that we've um, worked with who've become standalone entrepreneurs on their own. 
And that really is the empowerment that I like and feel proud about. Um, the affirmative company management and structure was a, it was an interesting experience. Um, probably wouldn't do it again in the same way. I sort of, I get the feeling that you're doing all these things as far as empowering, uh, empowering people, uh, beekeeping, uh, employing your education in biotechnology. Are these avenues for helping others? Yes. Yeah, I think the, you, you summarized it, it very well. Yeah, the use of knowledge to um, allow other people to access opportunities that, that allow them to access the environment and convert the resources they have access to into something that can empower that person. So yes, that, that is, I, th I think you, you helped me see an aspect of myself I haven't looked at, but that's a, a nice way of putting it. So I w I'm curious to know what's next for the Method Accidental Project. Um, for, for you, Garth, I suppose that would be, uh, what projects are you looking for? You alluded to the uh, in-hive fermentation, I suppose. Uh, I'm curious about that, and then uh, we can follow up. Uh, I'll follow with David after after you tell us what's happening in South Africa uh, in that way, uh, Garth. Look, the 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 next um, step in this adventure is is to produce a product which is unique, and that's going to be the in clay pot fermented um, mead, and part of that is also to create a social experience a social experiment that fits around that. So we're going to pack biodiversity into a clay pot using bees. Um, Andrew, my friend from high school, has um, Bongani and I think Vianni, who are the two guys on his farm, who assist him with his farming, and Pumlani, our, our regional beekeeper, will be part of that project. So what we will do with that is we're going to tie up a whole lot of loose ends. We also, and I'm unfortunately not, not allowed to mention his name now, but we will be able to mention it in a couple of months. We have a very successful South African entrepreneur who comes from an African background, who is very excited to be part of this process. And the reason he wants to be part of the process is he wants to use this to catalyze and educate young African students on the idea of technology transfer and techno technological cultural empowerment. So. It's, it's a fun project because, you know, now that I've sort of got to the middle of my career um, and the hair has gone nice and gray and, and, and all those sort of things, I'm, I'm able to, to bring in people that can turn this into the next stage of the transformation. So working with David and Matthias and the Be United team um, in the US and our team that we're assembling here in South Africa, we want to try and get young African scientists to see the power of technology and how that can transform our interaction with the environment. So the next step is to use Method Accidental as a, a focus to achieve that. And it's, it's going to be a very fun adventure, I hope. Actually, I know it'll be a fun adventure. And uh, for, for you, David, uh, obviously we're all excited to try the products, but the educational component that Garth described is very interesting. And is there any effort as a part of the Method Accidental Project um, to share information about those educational, ongoing educational efforts in South Africa and make people here uh, more aware of these components of the endeavor? 
you know, the project is is really in its infancy, and we and Garth are very much aligned in the cultural significance and, and what we want to achieve. And and yes, of course, we want to bring in awareness to the educational aspects, and we want to bring in awareness to the culture and, and to the climate issues that are concerned. But this is really a proof of concept at this point. We're not sure. We can sit here and geek out and really enjoy the stories here that we're sharing, but is this kind of culinary tourism of interest to the people that like to drink beverages and and, and play around with uh, different cultures? We don't know, to be quite honest with you. This is a proof of concept. Will people go out, share a bottle with their friends, look up the hive locations, look at these hives, read about the country, learn about the country? We don't know. That's got to happen, unfortunately. We can have the best of intentions to represent the country and represent the culture. We're not sure there's an audience. We think there is. We hope there is. There's enough people out there that are socially aware. We just have to find them and they have to find us. And this kind of initiative, exposing people to the educational opportunities that Garth is presenting, perhaps is a new gateway. We're hopeful. In closing here, uh, do you have, uh, Garth, do you have any sort of parting thoughts for folks over here about what you're up to or anything that you implore listeners to check out or consider? Um, look, the, the I would love people to... Um open up a bottle of Method Accidental at some point and just remember the fact that that is not only a bottle of alcohol, it's a perfume. Because if we look at the old French way of making perfume, you took flowers and put them on a layer of fat and then you extracted the floral notes from the fat with alcohol. And if we're looking at what we're doing with the Method Accidental, we're taking a layer of beeswax, putting honey inside that and letting the and he's sitting there so that all the floral notes dissolve into the wax. And the reason we make the met, well, actually it's not the reason, but now one of the reasons that we're going to say it is the reason, we discovered this by accident, that we make the method accidental on the wax is to pull all those floral notes into the mead. So with the, the method accidental, if you drink enough of it, you actually start to taste, the, you start to smell the floral notes on your skin. It's quite bizarre. It's a bit like rum. If you drink a lot of rum, you, so so this is a perfume that you can drink. So we would love people to um, explore the culture and drink our mead until they smell like a flower. That that would be my parting um, shot. A beautiful image image to consider. Uh, and for you, David, uh, any uh, any sort of parting words for our audience? I love that. Uh, I will echo those sentiments one hundred percent. Tell us that we're what we're doing is worthy. Tell us what we're doing is right. Uh, we can feel good about it and be very self-congratulatory, but it's not about us. We're not doing it just to feel good. We're trying to help out and we're trying to introduce people to a whole new world of, of flavors and culture. Uh, will it succeed? Let us know. Give it a shot. It's just something we should keep up. It's in your hands. Well, Garth and David, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. And we are looking forward to more from the Method Accidental Project and from uh, Meconometry. These are uh, exciting, exciting projects. So thank you for making the time. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. It's been an honor. Yeah, thank you.
Take care.